Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, your host. And today we're gonna to be talking about the upcoming elections. It's the midterms and it's a time of contention again in our country as we can't seem to figure out how to find one another across the dividing lines of politics, whether Democrat or Republican, and find that place of the common good where we all really want to be together in increasing our neighborliness and seeking to make room for people who disagree with us. This is a challenging time, and what do we do? Well, we can keep working at it. We can keep talking about it. We can keep refusing to remain in our silos and try to understand people, have empathy with them. And to that end, we're talking in this episode with Doug Paget, a pastor for 20 years. He is the co-founder of Solomon's Porch, a, an evangelical church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And now he is executive director of Vote Common Good, also the co-founder they are taking a bus trip around the country into key areas trying to help people to think in terms of faith, hope, and love, of how to overcome fear and hate and lies and those sorts of things, and to bring faith into practice in the voting process, in our democratic conversation about how we do life together. This is challenging work. He recently was in Dallas, in fact, a couple of times and held rallies here. And some of us at Faith Commons participated in those rallies. So pay attention to what Doug is up to. He is trying to help us understand the challenges that we face with the growing Christian nationalism and insurrectionists, what the roots of that are in faith, and how the answer to that is not to tell people to take their faith and be quiet about it, but rather more conversation about faith, more alternatives to that faith perspective, and how we can navigate those waters together to have a more civil society. So welcome, Doug Paget. We look forward to this conversation on Good God. Welcome, Doug, to Good God. We're glad to have you with us. Doug is standing in front of his bus for Vote Common Good, and it yeah. says there, Faith, Hope, and Love. Tell us about the bus and the tour you're on, Doug. Yeah, so uh, thanks, George, and good to be on Good God, with Vote Common Good on Good God. It's Faith, Hope, and Love, not Insurrections and Christian Nationalism Tour. We ask voters to make Faith, Hope, and Love their guide for their voting criteria as opposed to their party choice. But we're not asking elected officials to use only their faith as their guide for lawmaking, right? Laws have to be made by something more than just our reading of, of our faith. That's part of what it means to live in a civil society. So there's this important work that we're trying to do of saying to faith voters, hey, you should have your own motivation. And then legislators need to have their own guide for how they establish laws in the United States, which is something that's you know, really caused this rise of insurrection in the United States where a lot of people feel conflicted between the role of their faith in their own motivations and their own civic engagement, say through their churches or other organizations, versus what should the government do that has a responsibility for all people. 
And that's, so that's right. some of the work that we're doing. But we travel the country. We hold rally events. We hold training events on how to talk about Christian nationalism. We support all kinds of other social causes that are happening when we're out on the campaign trail. So we've been out this fall for almost two months, and uh, we'll be out through November 6th in a bunch of states. We had the great privilege of being, of course, in Texas, and we were in Arkansas and Kansas and Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where we are right now, Ohio, and we're going back and forth through those Midwestern states over the course of this year. Wonderful. Now, Doug, you talk about bringing faith into uh, the decision-making process for voters and also for politicians themselves when it comes to making public policy and judgments about the common good. You know, we have a long history in our country of people doing just that. And for much of the history of our country, that was sort of, I suppose, oh, I don't know, taken for granted as it was mostly mostly mainline Christian tradition that dominated the faith conversation in America. But that's a, that has shifted, and it shifted in a pretty big way now. Those of us who are involved in Faith Commons, my organization that sponsors Good God, we do encourage people to bring their faith into the public square. And yet, right now, one of the problems with insurrection and Christian nationalism is people bringing their faith into the public square. So what's yeah. the right way to do that? And what's the wrong yeah. way, if I could put it that way? Well, look, this is a really important question. It's something we've been talking about as a country from our founding, right? Mm -hmm. So we see ourselves in 2022 and asking this question. My congressional representative is Ilan Omar, and she's Muslim. Now, I want her to be driven in her life by any faith she holds, her Muslim faith, and I'm a Christian. I vote for her, not because we share the same faith, but because we have a shared commitment to the common good. So I want her to be driven toward the common good and then to find her legislative rationale for something outside of the Quran. And I want Christian candidates and legislators to find some rationale for their work outside of the Bible and Jewish representatives outside of the Jewish text or any faith. We need to find these other places. So this conversation, right, is something we've been wrestling with from the founding of the country. In fact, you know, in the 1800s, while we'll sometimes say like, oh, there was a shared narrative of faith and politics in the country. Well, Catholics were really prejudiced against, right? In fact, some yeah. of the early no prayer in school movements in the 1800s were to limit Catholic prayers from getting into public schools. So right. while it's easy for us to think, hey, we've always been a part of the same, you know, broad Christian or Judeo-Christian narrative, that's not even true. There's been a lot of discrimination between from one group to the other. So we have some history of this. And partly the history isn't very good. We haven't been very good at it. And as we perfect our union, as we perfect our ability to live well with one another in a globalized society, this is something we also have to be working on. So we find ourselves in a good tradition. We find ourselves in a tradition that we have to, have to navigate. And we know that it's, it's important and we need to get after it. You know, as soon as we, I'm in Pennsylvania. And so when the United States decided to form a union as opposed to live as colonies under the British rule, they had to adjust their narrative to say, okay, now Pennsylvania is going to live with the rest of the states differently. And the religious preference narrative 
has to be set aside. And frankly, in 246 years, there's a lot of people in Pennsylvania that weren't totally happy with that. They might want to go back to a previous period, right? There's some of that happening. I believe the person running for governor as the Republican nominee has some attitudes that feel much more like old Pennsylvania wow. than feels like the modern period. So it, it roots us, right? It reminds us that we're living in, in a dynamic experience as a nation. And it's not entirely clear how, what our future is going to look like. I think there's a path for us. I think there's a path that we want to follow. But this is real work that we're out here doing. And I got to tell you, George, in all my 30 years of being a, a pastor in a congregational setting, I used to say, don't worry about Christian nationalism. Like, it's fringe. Don't right, give it right. any fuel. Let's not take up any time. They're kind of harmless. Well, mm -hmm. either I was just dead wrong about that, which is quite possible, or things have changed. And we now have a new variant of Christian nationalism. And it might be a combination of the two. Maybe I was a bit misguided and didn't take it seriously enough. And I really do think something has changed. So we're living in a really unique moment now in our nation's history around this question of what's the role of faith, hope, and love for all of us as citizens. Because like, you know, I want to speak for you, but as a pastor, I mean, when you're a pastor, I want people to live out their faith in every area of their life, including how they right. think about their voting, right? I want them to have a commitment to faith for faith in others and hope for others and love of others all the time. But that doesn't mean I want my religious doctrine to be the rule of the land. And that's okay. a distinction so, that for a lot of people is hard to navigate. I think it is. And let me pick up here because I agree, you and I both grew up in an evangelical culture where we heard a lot about Christian nationalism, it wasn't the label we put on it back then, but it was, we know about Rush Dooney and about, you know, Gary North and about all those folks that we yeah. considered kind of to be fringe figures in yeah. American Christianity who wanted a kind of biblical theocracy in America. And now here we find ourselves with them being mainstream politically. <laughs> and it's shocking yeah. to us because yeah. We really didn't consider them to be voices that were legitimate conversation partners about the American religious experiment. And so here we are. But at root, I think Christian nationalists today who are owning the title and who are boldly saying that they want to bring their faith into the public square have a hard time with something you said earlier, and that is that you want your Muslim congressional leader to be rooted in her faith tradition, but not to take the Quran into her voting booth, so to speak, and into her policy making. Similarly, to leave the Bible in a sense for Christians and Jews, and not to leave it, but to recognize that we live in a pluralist setting. So what do you say to those who like, for example, Christian nationalists, believe that it's impossible for a Muslim to do that very thing, and therefore it's a contest between Christian who will take their Bible seriously into the democratic process and a Muslim who will do the same, and we have to win. Or is it unfaithful to ask a Muslim or a Christian to then enter into a more secular setting and effectively say, I'm privatizing my faith, and I'm in public, I have to set it aside for the common good. How do we yeah. put these things together, Doug? Well, 
I think that's the right question, right? I think you're really getting at the question that we're all that we're all struggling with. And I am not at all suggesting that someone can't be motivated by their faith, even in the legislation that they draw, but they can't simply have the rationale be the book of Romans chapter 13, as the former you know, attorney general said when giving justification for family separation policy. Yeah. Or we can't say second chronicles because we want to establish a day of prayer. If we want there to be legislation, if we want there to be legal demand put on people by the government, we need to find additional support to those things that our text or our faith might bring to us. I don't think anyone is suggesting that we should set, establish a law that tells us how and when to say, have communion or perform baptisms or right. to decide who can be married. Well, now there's where it gets interesting, right? So some people do want to take marriage laws and connect mm -hmm. it to their faith, but they don't want to do it with communion or other sacraments that the church might hold as significant and important. So we're already doing this work, right? We already know that know, nobody wants there to be sort of a one-to-one -one correlation between a Levitical law and the United States law. But they think, well, these things are kind of rooted and it's the space we operate in. And I think we're, they're right about that. It's rooted in our nation. It's part of our narratives. But we have to have an additional reason when we're going to establish public policy to what our faith commitments are. And this is what often becomes troubling to some voters is they want their representatives to represent their own particular convictions for the same reasons that they hold that conviction. Yes. Right. So it's this abortion is a really important issue on this. Now, the Christian tradition says very little, if anything, about abortion. But there's a lot of ways that we think about the issue of abortion and how we're going to make sure that women are respected and cared for and that, you know, the development of a fetus is something that's being honored in our society, you know, to a certain point and who's going to make those decisions. But the scriptures don't go far enough to tell us what to do about that. There's a lot of people, you know, calling for human viability to be declared at the point of conception. Well, you're not going to get that out of a text, but there's a lot of people who hold it deeply in their faith. So we both kind of work both directions, right? We don't want to take direct correlation from the Bible about how one should serve communion in churches, not going to establish a law about that. And then the, we're not going to go only to our text when it comes to our thinking about other moral and social issues. So we're already doing it. And we yeah. shouldn't fool ourselves somehow into thinking that the purpose of any of our of our faithful and sacred texts is to help us establish laws. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, frankly, even what you find in the Jewish text for Jewish law has, is only one portion of the establishment of Jewish law you know, in, in ancient Israel. So there's kind of a maturity that we need to have when it comes to how we establish laws, where they come from, where they're rooted in, what their rationale is, as well as thinking about our own text and our own scripture. That's why we're saying to people who are in churches and other faith communities, Look, use this as a chance to disciple your people into a greater understanding of civic life and even their text and their scriptures and how they function in the world and the value that they actually offer to us and motivate us to be involved in, in civic life. Because if you're going to be involved in civic life, you're going to take your faith into the public square with others who also have a faith. And you don't want their faith to override yours, nor should you expect that your faith is going to override theirs. And I think, it, I think your point is well taken about 
you, you mentioned abortion, for instance, and you know, if you're going to say that there is a Christian point of view, which there is not a Christian point of view on this matter, especially when life begins, you also have to be willing in the public square to acknowledge those who are bringing their faith tradition on the same subject. Because now what seems to have happened is, you know, the Christian viewpoint at the Supreme Court has prevailed. And the assumption is that life begins at conception. But Jews are quite surprised that conclusion can be reached based upon their own reading of Scripture, since they read Scripture, and the consistent tradition among Jews is to view life as beginning after birth, when the first breath is taken apart from the mother. Muslims as well do not hold generally to conception being the moment of life. So what we have here is a matter of learning how in the public square to bring our religion into conversation. And the the issue is not church-state separation, because that still works in this case. We are not asking people to separate God and government or religion and politics. We're asking them not to presume that one position of the church can be enfranchised legitimately in, in law and, and imposed upon others. That is the church-state separation issue, and that is being contested today. Yeah. Yeah, and look, there's a lot. It's not clear where the boundaries of the state and of the citizenry stop and begin. It's something we wrestle with. I'll tell you what's driving a lot of this. We're hearing it on the road as we travel and we hear it in the conversations that we're having. And that is the nation's response to the COVID pandemic. Uh, This is what really sits at the heart of the new Christian nationalist movement. There's a lot of people who just felt like churches and religious communities should have been seen as essential elements in our society. If the Walmart needs to be open, why can't the church be open? And they were saying to themselves, this is as essential an element to our lives as our ability to get the needs, our needs fulfilled, right? So you can see how someone would make that, how someone could make that argument. And we should have that that argument. I can see that argument, but here is where the nuances are so important, right? Because you can go into a store and you can be separated and a store keeper can say, we're only going to allow a certain number of people in, and you have to keep certain amount of distance, and you must wear masks, and all of that. Restaurants can do the same. But in a church where intimacy and congregating is the very essence of the idea, you know, to say that those are the same is not to think in a nuanced fashion, and the state does have a right to protect public health. So, so again, we're arguing back and forth on these things, but this is the point. Nuances are being lost in our culture, right? Yeah. The, the ability yeah. to think carefully about these matters. So what is it about Vote Common Good and your work in this effort that is contributing to bringing people together or helping them to think differently in this highly conflictual, seemingly binary time when people have 
establish two different points of view. And it's very hard, it seems, to bring people toward the center. What hope do you have of this effort, Doug? Well, our hope is that what will come out of all this work is greater empathy and greater engagement. Okay. We don't operate around a metaphor of coming together in the center. We operate around a metaphor of engagement. So in other words, engagement is something that you can, it doesn't have to be permanent is one way to think about it, right? You can engage with someone without having to sort of move positions to another position. And right. to do that through deep empathy is really important because it's every person that we meet and every person in the United States has a right to hold the beliefs and the assumptions and the passions that they have. And none of us should be going about trying to dissuade someone who doesn't want to be dissuaded. So our work is we try to get people who have felt dislodged from their voting identity because their voting identity came with them with a faith identity and then things changed. Often Republicans are experiencing that these days. They feel like the Republican Party doesn't fit them anymore and they don't want to lose their faith, but they too used to be something that came together in a package deal. And now they're separating. We're not out trying to convince people to change their relationship with the Republican Party. We're out trying to help people who've realized that relationship has already shifted. Something has already changed. We're not out trying to convince people to worry about Christian nationalism. We're out trying to help people who are worried about Christian nationalism to know how to engage in it. We're not out trying to talk to people who hold Christian nationalist views and tell them they're wrong. We're out trying to engage them to make sure they know that there's another viewpoint they can have. Because ultimately, human respect and human love is the key to empathic engagement. So what we need to get to in our society is the recognition and then the practices that we can engage with another person who has views that we actually find to be quite disturbing and problematic. Not just people who disagree on unimportant things. Like, that's a great place to start, right? Like, I don't know, start having a disagreement about sports franchises or you know, yeah. fast food rest restaurant preferences or something that kind of doesn't matter but still can cause a little bit of a kerfuffle before you move on to things that feel like they're rooted in someone's identity. Because right. for a lot of people, their political imagination, their religious imagination, those are not things they feel like they just believe. Those are core understandings of how they see themselves in the world, and who they are and how they operate in the world. And when you're playing with that, when you're starting to deal with those issues, you really have to recognize why a belief matters to someone before you start asking them to change or to consider another viewpoint. So what we're trying to do is to create more moments of this kind of engagement, more moments of consideration for people who are looking for it. And here's the truth, George, everybody's looking for it. Like I have talked to hardcore Christian nationalists, hardcore Republican only. I mean, I've been screamed at in bars by proud boys telling me that Donald Trump is the savior of America. And after a few minutes of conversation with them, they start to say things like all the rest of us. Like, yeah, I know it's not that clear. I know there's some complexities here, right? The first pass and the first blush and the first defense of who we are and how we operate in the world is not always fully telling about what's going on. So if we can hang in there long enough with people, it starts to become evidence that a change could be afoot. Can I tell you one brief story about that? We, uh, I wish I could find one of our yard signs, but we have these yard signs that say, I will vote 
faith, hope, and love. And it's faith over fear, hope over hate, yeah. and love over lies. Okay? Right. So we were doing a rally in Pittsburgh, and there was an anti-abortion protester group that showed up at a rally. We were supporting a, the election of a congressperson to the Democratic, a Democratic congressperson. And they were there counter-protesting around this. And so our rally went on. They were protesting. At the end, we were talking with them. And I said to one of the people who was sort of a leader of this group, I said, hey, if you, because you're pro-life, we might not agree on policies around abortion, but we can certainly agree, if you're pro-life, that we should end the death penalty in this country and we should stop our wars and we should make sure that poverty is not causing you know, premature death for people. And we should make sure that guns are not violence used in violent situations in our society. So we can agree on those things, right? And she said, no, none of that has anything to do with me being pro-life. And then she, we had these Black Lives Matter signs that we also had along with our faith, but not fear, hope, not hate, love, not lie signs. And she said, uh, and if you or any of your Black Lives loving, Black Lives loving friends ever came into my house without my permission, I'd shoot you with my gun myself, okay? And then she said, but I do like those faith, hope, and love signs. Can I have one of those for my yard? And I said, well, actually, those come with a donation. And she goes, okay, went to her car, got $20, came back, gave us $20, took one of our yard signs home. Because she yeah, said, she I up. think you're the ones with fear, you're the ones with, with lies, and you're the ones who are peddling hate, right? So we shared this sense that we both wanted to be faith, not fear, hope, not hate, and love, not lies. Just wow. these brief moments where you realize, okay, that kind of true messaging that's where people find themselves. And the more we can have these kinds of true engagements, and for some of us, it's easier with strangers than it is with family members. And for others, it's, you know, it goes better if you talk to somebody who you already love than somebody you really don't right. care much about. So, so that's the work I think that really has to be done. And we also have to do it in the media. I'll just say the reason we travel in a bus and sleep in a bus, and I'm in a Hampton Inn parking lot, and it is because we know that the media wants to tell the broader range of stories about faith and politics in America. So the Michael Flynn crowd are up here in Pennsylvania holding these Reawaken America Christian nationalism rallies. They get a lot of attention. And then we come pulling in with our bus and we run an event out in the street or in a park or at a church somewhere. And we've got this thing that looks like a media attraction, right? Right. Because we're working hard to be in the spaces that help to shape and form the conversations that people are having. So the front page of the New York Times app today is us standing with a person running for Senate, the Democratic Senate candidate here in Ohio at one of our rallies with our Vote Common Good sign. It's the framing, framing photo. And what we're trying to do is to be in the spaces and places to help other people also have these conversations. It's what we call in our work, the gift of going first. And I'll just say to pastors and other leaders, like take the opportunity to go first on some things and to get out there and to let people see and hear that people are trying to have another conversation. Because it's really easy to just go through your news feed and or watch something on television and think, why are these the only people that are out there that the media is right. paying attention to? And George, as you know, I mean, the reason the press pays attention to things is because you write press releases and you go out and you do things that can become interesting enough for it to reach a level of being newsworthy. Right. And I will say that the media and the press that I have found all across the spectrum, even on the very conservative side, 
for the most part, really does work hard to share a range of views. So we should be out in the public spaces sharing their views, especially as you said, we're trying to have a nuanced conversation in a less than nuanced world. Well, you know, the old saying is that the answer to free speech that you don't like is not less free speech, but more speech, more free speech. And so getting these voices out into the public square is crucially important. And I think about the trajectory of your own life, Doug, and your work in ministry. Years ago, I know you and I were paired up in a story about preaching in which, you may not remember this, but it was a story about where preaching is going. And when you were at Solomon's Porch, you were doing more dialogical preaching. You were doing more preaching that would you know, engage the people. And I was in a more traditional pulpit. But this whole idea of being able to use empathy, compassion in, in, in dealing with people is something that is longstanding for you as a pastor. And I find this to be an interesting trajectory where now you're moving it into the political sphere, not so much getting out of your own lane, but extend, expanding your lane, so to speak. And yeah. here I find myself doing the same thing with you now. And I, that's kind of a delight as our paths are, are coming yeah. together. That is really fun. It's fun to look back and see how you know, the, this highway has been paved over the course of our lives. We spend a lot of time on the highways driving around, and I'm always amazed that there are roads that take us to all the places we need to go to in this country. Like, we've literally built asphalt and concrete pathways to get there right. that weren't there before. Now, they didn't come without severe, you know, ecological effects and costs, so I'm not trying to be flippant about them. But we built them, right? We found a way to get from here to there. The 1950s, the big government project to build a uh, national highway system, really quite remarkable when you think about it. And I think, you know, for all of us, like what we're up to now, it's, I don't know about you, but it wasn't all that clear what I was going to be doing, right? Like I'm on this pathway that we're sort of making as we're traveling, right? We're kind of scouting out. I'm scouting out for my own work what the next piece is. And yeah, when, when I was in a pastoral context, what I wanted to do was to make sure that preaching was an action held by the community. I thought that preaching is best when it's a communal practice, not an individual practice, or that the communal practice is something more than a speech-making delivery system, right? Now, ironically, we now do these trainings, and I run the trainings, and they're like two hours long, and about an hour and 45 minutes of it is me just talking to people, just, you know, <laughs> full-on speech-making. You know, which I'm like, okay, I'm just here once. This is a one-time thing. And, you know, it's not a long-term relationship. So maybe this is a, you know, this is, maybe this is fine. But trying to use different tools and tactics where in a church setting, week in and week out for me for over 20 years in the same community, I wanted us to feel the responsibility to not only take preaching seriously as a community, but also to recognize all the preachers amongst us. We, we have this rule in our training that we do on lots of our work that really came out of my preaching life. And it's what I call the one word, 10 word, and 100 word frame. That some things are better said in one word, some things are better said with 10 words, or some things you might want to say it in 100 words, you know, or give or take a number in there. Like I often joke, when someone says to you, but dear, do you love me? The 100 word answer is not the best one at that moment, right? It's yes or no. 
So sometimes people have a word, sometimes they'll have 10, sometimes they'll have a hundred or thousands. People in our community, people in our country, they might not be able to talk as, about issues even as long as we have on this podcast or as someone like you so eloquently can do in a constructed sermon, but they could say a sentence that's really powerful or they could do the 200 words, which is the length of time that you know, Lincoln's famous Gettysburg Address was, less than two minutes in delivery, but something of real power or Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, not very long, but really carry a lot of implication for them. So finding spaces for all the preachers and preaching of all the lengths to be able to join together in this beautiful mosaic. So that, that's what I thought the Christian gospel called for in the society that we're in. And it's really what our nation also is begging for, right? As you said, I came over here so you can see the back of our trailer, which says, wake up, speak up, and stand up on it, which is our our other bit, we never want to tell anyone to be quiet. We just want other people to turn up the volume, or as we like to joke, hey, faithful people, your mute is on. Take your mute off and say it, you know, they can't hear you right now. It's like we're at a constant right. Zoom meeting in our society. Right, so so, so, so we, that's, the, that's the work we're up to. All right, so we need to wrap this up, and, and I feel like you've already answered this question in more than 100 words, so maybe this is a... a a Ted word answer. Get ready for the Ted word answer. But as uh, these these conversations, I like to finish them by asking our guests, "What are you learning from your own faith tradition right now mm. that is helping you to promote the common good in this current climate?" Wow, that is such an insightful question. Thank you for that. The, the commitment from my faith tradition is that we make no distinction between our neighbor, our God, and our enemy with our love. And while a lot of us don't want to say that we have enemies, we don't like to think of others as like, I don't put you on an enemies list. Sometimes we're viewed as the enemy by others. We certainly hear that out here. And to intentionally take seriously the love that we're going to have for people whose desires and passions feel opposite of ours, that's where the real struggle and work is. And to truly listen as deeply to the passions and the reasons and the function of their beliefs as we listen to those of the people that are on the bus with us, as the people that host the meetings that we go to, as the sweet little grandchildren that we have at home or children that we have at home, that that, that commitment to really see um, no functional distinction between loving our God, loving our neighbor, and loving our enemy as we love ourselves is really, that's the trick. And boy, when you're in the politics world and faith, it's easy to get binary. Like you gotta walk in the voting booth, you pick this one or that one, that's all you get. Or where I'm from, you get ranked choice voting, but still you only get some. And there's only one at the top of your list. But then when you walk out of the voting booth, you can't keep doing the only this or that, like that binary thing has to stop and you got to circle it all back in together and realize everyone has something to contribute and we're all in this thing together. I believe we're all on the planet together. We all share our humanity. We're all children and beloved by the same, same divine God. And we're all in this country together and we have to figure out how to live with one another in a way that doesn't just create binaries between you know, random enemies. Doug Paget, it's wonderful to have you on Good God, and thank you for being 
faithful to your Christian faith and also a promoter of the kind of democracy that will heal us and renew us as a country. And we're grateful to be in conversation with you and in partnership with you and in, in the work that you're yeah. doing. God bless you. Such an honor. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Good God with Doug Paget as our guest. Elections are coming up this coming Tuesday, November the 8th. Of course, we are now in the early voting period, and we certainly at Faith Commons urge you to vote. That is one of your civic responsibilities. It is a great privilege to do so, and not to vote is to take away one of the most important liberties that you have. It may be even that you are concerned about that liberty being threatened, and the best way to protect that is to vote. We hope that you will find a way, whether through early voting or on the day of November the 8th, to go to a voting booth or to mail in a vote, vote and make sure that your voice is heard. How should your voice be heard? How should you make decisions about these things? Well, I hope this episode was instructive to you and you were able to think about how you bring your faith to bear on voting but in doing so, you recognize that you don't have a right to overcome anyone else's faith perspective. You are contributing to that faith tradition of being engaged in public life without expectation that you have to win and everyone needs to agree with you. Instead, bring your faith, but also do so with a recognition that there is a common life we share that is good for everyone and think about how to vote in a way that promotes the common good. Thanks again for being with us on Good God. Until the next time, I'm George Mason, your host. Thanks for joining us.